Brooklyn. Welcome to the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VJR Nathan. And with us today is co-host Jessica Hines of Meditative Writing. Welcome, Jessica. Let's see. Uh, try it again. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so now our guest, special guest today is Linda Kleinbub. She received a master's in fine arts in creative writing from the New School and a master's in library and information science from Queens College. Since 2013, she has worked with Girls Right Now, uh, an organization that mentors underserved high school girls and helps them to find their voice through the power of writing. Linda has been a mentor and has served on the, on the Neothology Curriculum and a new mentee committee. Uh, she is also the co-host of the Fahrenheit Open Mic and co-founder of Pen Pal Poets. She's currently editing the Silver Tongue Devil Anthology. Some of her work has appeared in various uh, publications, including the New York Observer, the Brooklyn Rail, the Best American Poetry Blog, etc. Uh, she's also a photographer, a painter, and organic gardener. Her first full-length po- book of poetry is forthcoming from a gathering of Tribes Press. Welcome, Linda. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you, thank you. Um, so why don't we start the conversation off with your poetry and uh, your practice and what your major themes are and all this kind of stuff, like what, what, uh, and what the upcoming book is going to be kind of presenting. Yeah, um, I'm really excited to have my first full-length book of poetry coming out on a gathering of Tribes Press. I want to thank Steve Cannon and um, the rest of his staff for this opportunity to be able to publish my work on this press that's been around in such a long time in New York City since the 1960s. And um, yeah, basically um, a lot of themes I, I, um, I write about are um, have to do with nature and um, relationships. Um, some of my poetry has been, um, people say it's emotional um, but basically I, 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 I am a gardener, so I, I have a connect, I feel like I have a connection to the earth and a lot of times you see elements of uh, nature in, in, in my writing. I was thinking about the Voltaire quote to build your own garden, how that's like, you know, cultivate your own garden because that's like really part of the uh, process of being, uh, you know, uh, cultivating our emotions, cultivating our, our psychologies and such and making that our own garden, you know, making that our own internal garden as well, you know? Is that kind of like what you seem to be? Yeah, I think um, getting back to nature really grounds you. You know, it really um, helps you to deal with um, a lot of the noise that is in society. Mm. So a lot of times, you know, it's just very stress relieving just to bring yourself back to the earth. Even if you're just pulling weeds or, you know, planting a little flower bed, you know, you just watch them grow. It gives you hope. And Yeah, and you, you mentor the, the girls right now. Tell us a little bit about that that organization and... Yeah, Girls Right Now has been around for over 20 years. It was founded by Maya Nussbaum, and um, I've worked with three different mentees over the past six years, and I've also been on the anthology committee and um, served on the new mentee committee. And um, it's a great organization, and how it works is they take high school girls who are interested in writing, and they pair them with a, a mentor, and they work for the entire school year. And they agree to meet once a week for an hour. And then once a month, they have group workshops on different genres like poetry or screenwriting or um, TV writing, uh, memoir. So the girls get a really um, broad sense of writing and different um, categories of how they you know, channel their, their talents in writing. Good, good. Um... So now you grew up in New York, so tell us a little bit about how you'd run down that uh, New York is, the, is in your blood or the pulse of New York. Yeah, tell us about your relationship with New York. Yeah, um, I, yeah. I grew up in, um, in Queens all my life, and I've been told I have a Queens accent, so 
for people out there who are wondering what language I'm speaking, it's Queens. <laughs> this is what Queens yeah. people speak like. But uh, my father grew up on the Lower East Side. My mother was also born in Queens. And as a child, my father often took us back to his um, his childhood home, which was on 12th Street and Avenue B. And growing, growing up in New York City in the early 70s, New York City wasn't a very friendly, clean place as it is now. Yeah. And um, his house was basically a burned-out shell of a of a building, and it was kind of frightening to go there as a child. And he would take us down to you know his block and say, you know, this is the house he grew up in. And he would tell us that if you know if he didn't go to college, you know, we would never have the house we lived in in Queens, where I had my own bedroom and we had a little backyard. You know, so it was like a you know, even though I didn't think I had a fancy house in Queens, seeing you know. What could have, you know, his ruined house in the Lower East Side that back then, it was really a you know, far cry. So, um, yeah, yeah. So, um, yes, oh, yeah, no, I was just thinking, um, as, as someone who, I'm African. Yeah, I think it's like a very specific as you like. Okay. Yeah. Um, who, someone who, I came to New York in 2001, and even in that time, I feel like, things have changed so much and as a writer who's constantly write about about my environment um i can't imagine being able to have like an entire lifetime in the city that uh is so changed so much um so it's like i i love the idea of the gardening and the earth but like has that has the city played an influence on the the poetry oh definitely yeah you could see elements of new york city in my work um yeah, I mean, New York City was very dangerous back then. And, um, you know, when I would go to the city, you know, my father would, you know, always have us on guard and you always had to, like, you know, be aware of your surroundings. And um, I think it just, you know, made you give you, how do you, you know, you had grew a tough skin and you, um, um, yeah, so it definitely had, you know, I was on the subways when I was a little kid and they were covered in graffiti and it was, um, just a very different world than it was today. Yeah, I think environment is just a huge thing for writers. Um, you know, I know that for me, I'm constantly pulled between going out and finding the right environment to write in either a coffee shop or uh, um, a park and then feeling like I need to escape the city and like go upstate or go over, you know, seas and find some sort of like beautiful place um, to write in. Um, and a lot of my writers, they find that the location that they write in just really heavily influences what they're working on. So I'd be interested in, do you have a desk at home? Do you write in coffee shops? Like, what's your ritual with location and writing? Um, well, to talk about escaping the city, one of my things that I do to escape is I go to the beach. And we're so lucky in New York City that I can get to Rockaway Beach in about a half an hour by car. So I've been to, when I really need to escape the city, even if it's wintertime, I'll drive out to Rockaway Beach and I'll just look at the ocean. And the ocean is so vast and beautiful that a lot of my little problems that I have in my head will just disappear. Mm. So that, that is my escape, is the ocean. I love the idea of going to that beach in the winter. Yeah, it's really peaceful and quiet and very cold. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, is there any, do, are we going to do some readings? Yeah, so why don't we listen to a poem, why don't we start with a poem and then All right. uh, go off with one of your poems from the, tell us, set it off a little bit before you read. And okay. Um, 
All right, I'll, I'll start with a garden poem. This poem is called Be My Garden, and it was published in the Nassau County, uh, the Nassau Poet Laureate Society Anthology in 2017. And um, it's called Be My Garden. I need to cleanse myself, dig myself into the dirt, sleep with daffodil bulbs, breathe earth. I remember where last season's tomatoes grew, where the strawberry patch sent its runners through the hot peppers and the eggplants. I want to feel you again to know you like I know the dirt in my garden. I'll rake last season's leaves from you, fertilize you, rejuvenate you. I want to introduce you to the praying mantis and the ladybugs so they could defend you from parasites. I want you soil ready so I could dig my hands in deep, plant a fragile seedling, water it, and watch it grow. Thank Yay. you, thank you. Snap, snaps. <laughs> so... Uh, also, I have in your bio about the Pen Pal Poets. I'd be interested to tell us more about what um, Pen Pal Poets are and co-founder of Pen Pal Poets. Yeah, I, um, yeah. when I first started to um, get um, active in the poetry world, um, a friend of mine, Bert Baroff, had a friend who had a little theater in the theater district, and um, he would let us use it to do poetry readings. So we started Pen Pal Poets, and um, for the past uh, five years, I've always done a reading at the New York City Poetry Festival, which is on Governor's Island. Yeah. And um, it's just a way of um, organizing poetry readings and promoting poetry. We have a Facebook page, and um, it's just another way to get the poetry out into the world. So they're actually pen pals that write each other poems? No, it no? was just a name we could name for okay. the group. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. But I was a yeah. pen pal. I, I, yeah. had, I was a pen pal for many years. So. Yeah. I got so yeah. excited. I was yeah. just like, is there like someone in Japan or something that I'll just like, write some poems too? Yeah, right? we could only communicate through poetry. Yeah. <laughs> but maybe that's how the group will grow. But maybe that's a great yeah, idea great to idea. take it to the next level, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, I had a pen pal very briefly when I was, I think, in middle school. And, you know, it was so exciting and and thrilling and interesting. And, and I think about it every once in a while, I'm like, wow, like that, that doesn't really, I'm not, I was like, that can't really exist in the same way anymore because of email and, and text and Skype and like, yeah. you know, and I'm wondering like, yeah, I, but I always feel like those ideas come back. They always have a Renaissance somehow. And I just feel like, yeah, I mean, maybe there is something in there's something nice about it getting a handwritten letter from somebody. And yeah. I have a few friends. Um, one of my friends, um, he and Park, who now lives in California, she was also a writer. And um, she writes, we write each other handwritten letters. And um, it's really nice, too. Yeah, my, my grandmother, I still, um, I mean, I, I think technically she's on Facebook, but that feels weird to me. So I still, we, we write each other every couple of months. And so that's still a place where... I get to practice that a little bit, but it was something interesting. I think about knowing a person only through words. Cause I don't remember I've ever got a photo of that pen pal. Mm. You know, you couldn't Google them. There was no, <laughs> you know, there's no Google. There's no, you couldn't look them up on Facebook or Instagram. And, and it was so interesting that it's almost like the relationship I feel I have with like Gertrude Stein, where I'm like, I only know her through her words and there's something like really amazing about the fact that there's a human being that I communicate with on a regular basis because whenever I'm doing my meditations for like who do I want behind me who do I want supporting me it's like I you know it's Frida Kahlo it's it's Gertrude Stein it's Sylvia Plath it's Virginia Woolf um, my little gang and and yeah, like I just I only know them through the the written words and there's something like really amazing and kind of powerful about that that I feel like we don't we don't have with with people in our lives right now because everyone it seems 
you know, has an online presence that you can Google and, and under, understand who they are without really interacting with them. But, but people online show you what they want to show you. So it's also you see yeah. what they want to, sh- what they're showing yeah, you. They have that, like a yeah. persona, oh, that right. version of themselves that mm-hmm. they like to present, which right. is usually not always the, well, yeah. the, the whole the picture. Truth, the whole picture, I yeah. See. Well, all, and or the things that get online that people don't want, you know, yeah. on there. Or even right. just, you know, I was thinking about it with this podcast because I think we were talking last yeah. week. I was like, wow, I was like, you know, because I really don't have a filter. You know what I mean? I am like, I'll just... Anything that pops up for me, you know, I'm a very, I practice like radical honesty. And I realized how I was like, oh, like someone could come and listen in and like get this sense of like all of the darkness <laughs> in me without yeah. ever, you know, sitting down and really interacting with me. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and to have it not curated in a way where what I put a book of poet, I mean, I haven't done a book of poetry, but if I put poem out, if I put a script out how much I curate and work yeah. on that and craft that compared to, you know, when we're just sitting here talking yeah. and, um, yeah, even with the 75 episodes of this show, it's over almost 80 episodes of this show. And then all the guest spots I've done other shows, mm-hmm. like people could learn about my whole life theoretically. Yeah. And if they did the work and they put it, they hit the pavement and, went through all these episodes. I mean, but then I guess it's kind of a reward for, you know, I don't know. Yeah. You know? Right. Like there's so much I reveal on different episodes of different shows. Of, uh, yeah. I think it's yeah. a, just a new way of intimacy that yeah. we have, where, which is also what I think poetry is. I mean, I think poetry is probably the most intimate thing that you can give someone. I know for me, like there's only been one person in my life that I've ever written a love poem for and, and given to because <laughs> that's how vulnerable that feels yeah. to me. Um, but I don't know. I mean, do you feel, do you feel most comfortable with showing people? It, is like poetry, like getting naked in front of people for you or is it like where you fly? No. Um, I, a lot of my writing, I've been writing since I'm about, you know, 10 years old. And um, a lot of times I've been writing all it's, it was, it's a release. So when I'm have a lot of stress in my life, when things are going really wrong, I'll go into my notebook and I'll write things out. And it's yeah. a way of get processing my thoughts clearing my head and um, it really gets me through tough times. And then, um, you know, I've always loved writing and poetry. Um, I, I like that it's very concise and very, you could do, you can convey a lot of emotions and a lot of ideas in a very short, you know, piece of work. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I think that for me also, I think that people tend to realize that when you put it, when you marry the emotionality with the emotions and the, and the processing with the craft, then you really, it actually helps. It's almost like a therapy kind of the way to, to guide those emotions within a structure. And you're able to figure out, you know, how can I guide this towards something that can be appealing to our reader and connecting with the reader. So then you're able to pull yourself into that tribe and you're able to guide that emotional life into a, a form. Right. Do you feel that way? Or? Yeah. I mean, yeah. if you could write something and you connect another reader, then your work comes alive. Yeah. So, I mean, anytime somebody else gets what you're writing, I mean, then you, as a writer, you're doing your, your job. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I think it's a combination of like connection to self and then <sighs> finding that connection to other people that it requires a certain amount of presence and listening, both to like listening to like what's going on inside of you, but, and then also like listening, you know, to what's on the page and listening to the you know, your your audience listening to you. And I think that's one of the things that's most therapeutic about writing is mm. just the mindfulness of it. The idea that you can become present enough to make an actual connection, be it with yourself yeah. or with another human being. Because I feel like so much of 
my journey in my life of, of like all of the ups and downs of my mental health and of my relationships, so much of it really just comes down to connection. Mm. And so much of, I think the pain that we feel comes from is almost always stemming from a feeling of not belonging or not, you know, not connecting. And so I think that's why if you write, if you, if you create a poem, like you experience that connection, even for a tiny little brief second and just that brief little release I think just like gives hope to the body and the mind of like, oh, like this, we, we won't stay in this pain forever. Right. There is a place beyond the isolation or at least for me, that's what I really felt that I was always so isolated and no, I felt like I didn't belong anywhere. And when I first wrote a poem, it was the first time I felt like people looked at me and saw me and that I was useful to them somehow. Mm. Right. You know? And so, yeah, I think that that's one of the most I think most people do come to poetry for like what it gives them personally. And then the people who go on to usually, you know, put stuff out there are the people who find a way to do that for their readers. Right. And there's so much, I mean, poetry today, it's such a diverse field. So you really, anybody who is looking can really find what they're looking for. Yeah. I feel overwhelmed by like, there's some times where I'm just like, I look at a poetry section or books and I'm just like, I don't, I don't know. Cause like, I don't connect with all poetry. Like yeah. I'm not that person who sits down and is like, Oh my God, I love poetry. Like right. I hate most poetry yeah. or I'd rather say po- most, po- there's a lot of poetry that I'm like, I'm sure that is for there are people that connect to that. Yeah. I don't yeah. personally, but I think that's like it. anything. I mean, you don't yeah. probably don't like every food or you don't like every, every yeah. song you hear is not your favorite either. So I think yeah. just with anything this you know, the more there is out there, the more you're going to say, well, I like this, you know, I don't yeah. like that. But when I read like poetry, generally speaking, I feel like a lot of times we're locked. The reader's locked out of the emotional interior. Mm-hmm. So I just feel like I don't really get, Especially when you read a poem out of context of a of a collection, mm-hmm. I just feel like you know it's not always accessible to knowing where the interior is, unless there's a real effort on the part of the poet to be like, "I'm going to make this successful. I'm going to let them mm-hmm. in, let the reader in, and and get, find some kind of point of entry where, which is general or general enough for that people have some connection with it, and they can understand the the rhythm and and on uh, like um, vocabulary, right. and then can kind of get into it through there. I think the garden is a great way to allow your reader to have an entry point in and then have from there leapfrog into the emotions and the, and the vulnerability and such. And so I think, you good, know, yeah. I think just, you know, understanding that everybody's human and everybody feels pain and everybody yeah. feels love. Everybody knows heartache and yeah. are broke, you know, be having a broken heart. So yeah. I think just knowing the universal things that make us human and then being as a poet and being able to, you know, use that in your writing and, and to find things. And then, you know, a successful poem is something that does relate to some, you know, people. Um, when I started writing, I never was going, I never was a spoken word person, but, you know, I intend, I write to write my words and send them, you know, thousands of miles and have somebody read it and get what I was writing, you know? And then when I got into being, you know, poetry in the New York scene, you know, then doing readings became a big part of it. And, you know, that's a whole other thing is, you know, performing your poetry to get in order to connect as you're reading it. Yeah. But- and it's so funny because I, you know, I, I actually most of the poetry that, that I've done developed more from from spoken word where, um, you know, it's the, there's poems that, like they're not even written down where because in, in my meditative writing class, um, the way we share at the end is everyone reads um, a random sort of plucking of bits from the exercise that we've done 
And then, and I, and then I, I have a very specific way in which I'm like, you listen and you write down like what your unconscious, what, what those words uh, conjured up in your unconscious. And we just write down what our truths of other people's truths was. And then at the end, I, you know, it's, I perform my list, you know, as spoken word, you know, as it's this poem that we all wrote together. And so Mm. most of those things, it's like they're poems that are written, they're, they're created in the moment of like me looking at the words that I have on that page. And like, they're not, those are poems that thousands of poems now that I'm like, I don't even have written down. I I think I have most of them recorded in my archives and I would have to transcribe them. But for me, like most of the poetry that I do now is this like space between the page and myself and then the people listening. And, and so, yeah, I think there's just, it amazes me how many different forms of poetry there are. And I think if there are people who maybe are like, poetry is not for me, then it might be good to just wander <laughs> yeah. into a place and just start asking people like to introduce you to the different kinds of ways. Cause I also find that there's some poems I feel locked out of and it makes me mm. feel, no one wants to feel stupid, you know? And it's an experience I had also when I first started traveling and I would go to all these art museums, but I would feel like crap. And I'm like, I feel like I just don't understand cause I'm not a fine artist really. Mm. And I haven't studied fine art. I didn't study art history. And you know, before, you know, before people kind of gave me permission to like have a relationship with the art and look more about like, how does the, what does the art say to me rather than like, what was the artist trying to do? And I do think that that's something for writers to think about is like, what is the entry point for your audience mm. um, for your, for your piece? Or if you don't, if you want to make it really hard, if you want to lock that house up and not have a front door, then, you know, that's your prerogative. But I always find that metaphor is the easiest way to invite people into my work. I mean, you mentioned, you know, you go to an art museum, you say like, you don't get the art, but I think, you know, you don't have to really understand what the artist was doing. I think if the art that you see makes you feel something, then the artist did his job. So if you could mm-hmm. see something and be moved by it, whether it, you might have a totally different experience than the artist had, but if you get any kind of emotional, any kind of feeling from it, I think then the artist did his job. Yeah, I think that's just something where I, I just see a lot of people who they... They don't value their experience. They, they they think that if they don't understand what the original creator was trying to do, that it's not for them. And it's like this place of not validating your experience of the art. And I think that's just so important that if I look at a piece of art, if I read a poem and I say, for me, this is about my childhood in California on that lake. And the right. author's like, no, 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 this is about this. I'm like, no, no, no. Like right. my experience of your art is completely valid. Right. Yeah. My opinion doesn't matter. Right. <laughs> Especially my critique doesn't matter necessarily. Right. But and, and then and that's true for anyone. Anyone's experience of a film is right. valid. And I wish more people because I think it, it scares people off from creating art sometimes or yeah. getting into it because they mm. they think, oh, I don't know enough about film to write a script. And I'm like, if you know what it likes to have your heart broken, if you know what it's like to want something from someone else and pursue it, then you absolutely have everything you need to write a screenplay. Um, But I hear that a lot in, in younger writers coming up of this feeling that if they only knew intellectually or more information about something that then they could create in that world. And, you know, I'm just like wisdom comes from experience and information 
information doesn't help you as much to create art as well, much as yeah. wisdom it's does. true wisdom from does come from experience but i think you know learning your craft so for a filmmaker to keep yes. you know again going to classes to learn you know i've been studying poetry since i was in college you know in my early you know when 18 19 years old and i'm still you know taking classes and still studying poetry because i think you, you're always learning i don't mm. think you know to say well i went to school i'm done learning then it's almost like you stop living. I think, you know, the more you learn, the more it just increases the world around you and expands your horizons. Yeah, speaking of all this, uh, it makes me think about how the essence of a, a piece of art or a poem can't be reduced to a summary or a, a, any other way of communicating it because I think that when people are kind of used to the idea of, you know, looking at a work and being like, well, what is, I'm needing that cliff-noted version of it um, doesn't capture, and then this has to do with the education system, how we kind of question or ask questions about works that seem to make it into something other than what it is. You know, we have this uh, standardized testing that um, reduces the work into, you know, answering right. questions about it. So then uh, it really destroys the appreciation of the work as it is without requiring the intermediary step of like, well, what, what's the through line or what's the takeaway or what's the, you know, what's this, you know, you know, instead of restating the, the essence of it, instead of looking at the work and it's aesthetic and, and full blown, you know, language usage and all this kind of thing, we have to then create an intermediary step instead of accessing the work directly, you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, that's something I'm interested in because I'm very familiar with, <clears throat> criticism or reviews in the theater and film world. Um, I have not interacted with that as much with poetry. So yeah. is that, I mean, is that a thing in, in the poetry world as much as it is uh, in, in theater and film, this idea of like poetry criticism? You know, well, I mean, I meant specifically in regards to the education system, mm -hmm. the way that it's taught. Like yeah. uh, even when I was doing, I, I, mean, I did an English uh, BA and I went into teaching so I did some um, uh, standard testing, you know, for, become a teacher. And uh, the toughest question or the most uh, toughest or whatever, the most challenging, because we have a timed exam, we had to read a poem and then answer questions about it. And I, I found myself like, these questions are like ridiculous. Like it just, I just found myself, you know, really mm, right. uh, kind of having a bad reaction to the questions and how they were overcomplicating the poem or how right, they were right. making it into this big, you know, the, the, sta the standardized questions always make it into this more of enigma than it needs to be. And people, right. you know, overcomplicate things. You and, know? and poetry is open yeah. to interpretation. So yeah. how one person might interpret it might be totally different than the person who wrote the exam. Who yeah. say, you know, well, I, you know, the person writing the exam could have been, well, I interpreted it this way. And I think yeah. the poem is saying this, whereas somebody yeah. else could read something and say, well, no, I, I'm for me, it's, I, it, the poem says something totally different. Yeah. Well, well, I guess that also brings up is, I mean, is there a way to have some form of standardized, like, how do we, how do you grade art? Yeah. You know what I mean? That's something yeah. that I, like, I went to graduate school for, you know, the arts and, uh, and the way that it was run and like the grading just felt really ridiculous because I was like, this is so subjective. Mm. Like this right. is like aside from like I mean you could do it by like did you finish the script you know you could right. do it right. with those things right. but it wasn't there was this level of and and me and my cohort like we could we felt so torn between exploring the art we wanted to explore and pleasing the teacher to mm. get 
a decent grade because I mean it was a none of us wanted to get bad grades but we weren't obsessed with you know the grades because it's you know art right but it just makes me question the whole system I mean especially with now what's happening with higher education and you know the loans issues the, the financial aspect of it and this feeling that it's crumbling which is like I just I'm not sure that that system works very well for helping artists because it really does feel like you take a bunch of people and you're saying you're going to be an artist we're going to help you be an artist which requires you to be completely unique and be yourself but we're shoving you into a system where you then have where we're like into this little factory system where we're going to produce you like we would produce a car and it just feels really contradicting to me about like if you want to be a great artist and you want to hone your voice going into a system that's going to say you have to do it this way feels like it would be moving you backwards rather than forwards. Yeah, I think with any kind of art, you know, whether it's painting or writing or, you know, I think um, it because it is subjective, I think finding, you know, a teacher who gets what you're working with and gets, you know, your your message, what you're trying to do is very useful. And that doesn't always happen for people in, in a school system. But you talked about how do you grade, you know, art? And um, when I was an undergrad, um, I was a computer science major, and I took a lot of poetry and art classes for fun because physics and calculus was very hard. And um, so I had an oil painting class, and the way the teacher graded it was he took all your paintings that you did throughout the semester, and he had to put them in order from the first painting to the last painting, and he mm. wanted to see if you grew as an artist. So he was able to see, like, did you incorporate more color as the semester went on? Mm-hmm. And he, so it wasn't like, you know, was it good art or bad art it was like did you learn anything and did your art grow in the time you spent in the classroom and I think that was you know a good way to kind of judge somebody yeah um I think growth growth or development I think is is a much better way of of looking at that but that's what I think it is is like we were beforehand we were talking about the importance of finding a mentor that works personally for you or a teacher that that like you're like oh this this person's approach works really well for my for my art and for my voice. And I think that's what scares me about, you know, a system or a university where you don't get to meet or choose the teachers necessarily before you go in there and you can't, you know, they, or at least in the smaller programs, like the program I was in, like there was absolutely no choice of the teachers that I worked with. Right. Like they were like, you go, there's no choice of classes. They're like right. this is your schedule. These are your teachers, you know, um, and that's it. And I wish that I'd taken the time to research those people and to find a way to connect to them and ask to speak with them before I signed away financially like the next 20 years of my life to work with those people. I I think that's good advice to anybody who's going into a program, especially a program like that. Um, I could say the same thing. Um, I wish before I went into my MFA program that maybe I researched more of the teachers I was going to work with. I mean, I, I, I thought I did research. I tried to read, you know, a little bit of all their work. But um, in hindsight, I think, you know, finding someone who you really connect to. And now when I look for, a, you know, when I want to go to a workshop, I look for a writer that I admire, you mm-hmm. know, and I'll, I'll seek them out and then I'll work with them. And that's useful. Yeah, I think that a lot of times people go to those programs because they, they want structure and they want, like, they at least the writers I've talked to when they were like, I'm thinking of going to grad school. And I'm like, all right, what what brought you to that decision? And they're at a place where they're so frustrated that they want to be at a different place with their art and in their career as an artist. And they think, oh, well, if I go into this, it'll be a year to three years and my life will be structured. And then afterwards, I will 
then I'll be happy, you know, <laughs> right, then I'll right. be done, then mm-hmm. I'll have, and, you well, know. If someone has no, you know, if they have no structure before they go to school, going to school will give them some structure temporarily while they're in school, but mm-hmm. it, basically their life will probably go back to the way it was before they were in school. Yeah, that's <laughs> one of the things I give them. I'm like, listen, I'm like, once you leave, you're going to be back in the wild. So it might be good to work on that before you go so that, you know, when you get out. But But I do think because of that, there's such a desire to want the dream of then I'll go to grad school and then everything will be okay. And then I'll know I'm good. And then, you know, I'll get the gigs that there's a blind spot to questioning, like, is this actually the right program? Is this like the right institution? Are these teachers going to be good for me? Right. And and really, you don't know. I mean, I don't think anybody could really say, well, I know this program is going to be perfect for me. Yeah. And I think that there's a, also the idea of looking at someone's resume versus understanding how they are as a teacher and whether they're good for your voice. Because I know yeah. I looked at like my te- the, the resumes of some of the teachers and I was like, oh, wow. Like, right. but that, you know, just because they got they were nominated for that award doesn't mean that their their writing or their their artistry is going to connect with my artistry. Right. And so those are just some th- questions that I think are good for people to think about. Um um, before deciding to, you know, give, like, allow someone else to shape your work. Because um, I do think that that mentor-mentee relationship is really, really important. And I think that sometimes people don't, and, and, and there's a lot of power in it. Like, the when you go into a classroom, you know, you are surrendering to that person. And their validation or their, or not, you know, just chemically wise in the brain what it does for your work i mean um, the other thing about being in a program let's say like an mfa program is um, not only the teachers you work with but the, all the other students are also writers so mm-hmm. you're really expanding your network just by being there yeah. and if you're working you know when you're in the school and you're working your program you know properly you're really challenged you know using all the things available to you so you're you know using you know other students to learn more about your craft you mm-hmm. you know reaching out to teachers beyond the teachers you have in the classroom and um, I think that's something students should know is get very involved. If you're paying a lot yes. of money for your education, don't just sit in a classroom or don't take an online class and stay in your house. Get involved and meet as many people, you know, get involved as many ways you can because that'll just build, you know, your character in your craft mm-hmm. and um, help you to grow. The yeah. the fellow writers that I, the people in my cohort, like they, the, I learned the most and I got the most out of the other writers and the actors and directors in my program, that to me was the most valuable thing that I got out of my master's degree. And, and so, yeah, really knowing that the people sitting next to you around that table might be the most valuable allies that you have for your writing and for your career. Right. Yeah. I think also like uh, these educational systems and and the arts and all that are, as you were saying about giving you tools and techniques, being able to innovate and, Giving, giving the ability to think critically about these toolboxes and techniques. So um, one thing I would explore is like what specific techniques and tools have you gained and, and what kinds of tools and techniques do you use uh, and you, you want to, in your writing? And, um, yeah. Well, basically, um, you know, like I said, I've been writing practically all my life, but um, yeah. I always, you know, loved poetry very early on. I always loved poetry. And when I started taking classes um, about 10 years ago, one of the first classes I took was forms of poetry with my, one of my mentors, Star Black. And um, basically that was all the different forms like a villanelle and a pantoum and haikus mm. and, and, um, and learning the structure of a form poet poetry um, helps you 
to really kind of um, hone in on, on the writing that you're doing because you have to kind of make the writing fit the form. And it, it could be challenging to some people. But for me, I kind of like it. It's kind of like um, applying like a math problem to your words and getting everything to come out, to, you know. And um, it, I so it, it's exciting when I have a form and I could, you know, create a good poem using the form like that. So that was my first way I, I got involved. And then the other thing about, you know, being in an ed- educational system is being exposed to other writers. I mean, a really good teacher will, during the course of a semester, is, introduce you to many, many different writers that you might not, you know, ever have read before. And some of them you might not, you know, love, but just to be aware of those different things out there in, in the world of writing helps you to grow as a writer. Yeah. Now, do you have another poem that maybe is in sure. a form or, oh. uh, and if you have something in the form or maybe that might be a good dovetail to, uh, uh, if you have something that's in the form. I have a haiku. Um, okay. I don't have it. In, um, okay. So um, this is a haiku called July. Crescent moon overhead. Banjo heard from neighbor's yard. Fireworks at dusk. That's a haiku. Thank you. Here, read it again, read it again. Read it. Or uh, July, um, crescent moon overhead, banjo heard from neighbor's yard, fireworks at dusk. Thank you, thank you. That's so great for capturing a moment. Yeah. yeah thanks. But I'll, I'm happy to read another poem if you'd like to hear it. Yeah. Um, I'll read the poem I have in the Girls Right Now anthology called Control B. This is the 2019 Girls Right Now anthology. Um, it's called Relic. Um, Okay. Relic. We rush about gathering pages. What colorful lament leaves regret? Leaves we meant to photograph. We gaze up looking for stars, building the sun. The equality of secrets. Secrets positioned, pruned and tied neatly along the fence. Task at hand becomes a distraction. Phone calls unanswered, voices unheard, messages unread. Is there a serenity in the steps you shuffle? And what comes of the pages, myths of scorn and greed, blanketed in the silence of memory lost? We return again to meditate as we move along underground tracks through underwater tunnels. We gather again a scrap of ideas, a phrase of prayer, a creation we made, our ancestors' assignment remembered. What will be remembered in this rhythm beaten down, generations lost, a faded photograph, only to be slipped between the pages, folded from book, book to be passed on to future relations, still unknown, still unconceived, held on by tradition, held on by a string, held on until your grasp fails, let go. Are we left empty-handed? What imprint in the dust? Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Yay. We're doing snaps now. I, am <laughs> I love the snapping. Yeah, great, great. So, um, yeah, tell us a little bit also about the process and kind of like uh, and go a little bit to that. And, and uh, well, I'm always stuff. writing, so yeah. I always have a notebook with me, and I'm yeah. always writing and writing and writing. So, yeah. and a lot of it doesn't turn into poetry, but um, you know, the best poems are just the poems that you just write, and all of a sudden you're like, wow, did yeah. I just write that? Look at that, you know? And, yeah. and sometimes that happens, and that's wonderful when that happens. But um, other times, you know, you'll write something, and it might come out of an emotional situation you're in, and then you say, well, there's something here. And then you'll, you know, pull it out and type it up, and then you revise it, and then you'll read it out loud at a poetry reading, and then you, you kind of get feedback. And then when you hear yourself read it out loud, you might tinker with it again. 
So uh, some of the poems that will be in my upcoming book, um, I've been working on and revising over the past 10 years. You know, some poems, when they, once they get published, I consider them pretty much done and I stop working on them. But then there are some poems where you always think, well, there's something about that that's just not perfect yet or it's just not the way you want it to be. And you keep tinkering it and tinkering with it. And um, so, you know, sometimes that work is never done. And then, you know, finally, after years and years, like, okay, I think this is what I was trying to get to it in the beginning. So just to keep working at it. Yeah, nice, nice. No, I agree that there's something... There's something magical, like I, I just feel like everyone, like maybe every fifty poems, like one will just like fall out of me, and I'm like, oh, fully formed. That's it. And, but I and I and I get so excited about it, and I'm like, oh, that was so easy. But then I immediately talk to myself and I remind myself, Jessica, this is only going to happen like once every five years. That's when the muse <laughs> you know? comes, and, yeah. the muse and I'm like, just remember, <laughs> just remember, like, because. But I think that every poem in between is like you. The, the artist learning and getting to that place, I think it's like like a vending machine. Like there's like 25 Frito-Lays and then there's a Snickers bar and you're uh-huh. just like, and you just have to keep uh-huh. working through and that, you know, the, your art, the, the connection of the artistry and the, the honing of the craft comes together that just like you hit that one little plateau and for a moment it goes, okay, here's this gift, keep going and then continue up the mountain and that each of those poems or pieces in between that you you tinker with, that you really work hard on, like because of that hard work is why you that other poem could just kind of fall out of me. Mm. And so I'm always, I'm grateful for the ones that I work hard on and I'm grateful for the ones that kind of fall out of me. And Right. And sometimes you go work on a poem and never get it the way you want it to be. Oh yeah. Know, I so. mean, like Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah, the the lyrics that song, I think he worked on it for 20 years. Right. And he didn't even get it right. Jeff Buckley got it right. Right. You know, um, there's if. Well, Walt Whitman was revising Leaves of Grass for his whole life. So, uh-huh. right. So, you know, he was from one of America's, you know, most celebrated poets. And, you know, he even him, he was writing and revising. And I think that's a good thing for people to think is that if you're struggling with your writing, just know that you're you're with Leonard Cohen and Walt Whitman and, you right. know. Like, I just find recently a lot of writers feel like there's something wrong with them because they're struggling or because they're working on. And I'm like, the struggle is kind of like the job. You right. Know? Exactly. Mm. Exactly. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and making peace and finding joy in in the growth of that and in that. that but like, you know, I, I just get scared when people say, like, I just wish it was easy. I don't, you know, life isn't easy. So yeah. You know, yeah. sometimes yeah. you got to work at what you really want. So and I think those people look for it being easier are thinking about uh, just producing a product, like a mass produced product that, that mm-hmm. audiences will be able to grasp and understand. They're not d- diving deeper into to innovation and, and bring and poetry, I think, is really about experimentation and innovation, trying to find new pathways for the reader. So that then we're like the shamans of today. So we're kind of like, bringing our reader to new worlds and new experiences and new uh, emotional states that are not new in the sense of like, but new in the sense of innovative or trying to find a surprise right. that will bring them into an inroad into something that will help them grow or bring them somewhere different. I know? think, you know, for a writer to learn to trust their voice is yeah. a big thing. And I know when I started taking um, workshops before I even went into my MFA program, I, you know, I, it was very new to take a, a, a formal class and I was thinking, well, what do I have to write that, what do they want me to write? Mm-hmm. And I found myself, you know, reading poetry by other poets and thinking, well, I have to do something like that. And in the beginning I, I was, I was doing that, but it wasn't working. That, that was poetry. That those poems are really pretty horrible. And over the course of time by doing that and just 
writing and writing, you, you find your voice and, and then your voice gets, you get comfortable writing and in your voice, mm-hmm. but that doesn't happen. And for a young writer to think that's just going to happen. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it doesn't always happen that way. And if it, if they are young and it does happen, they're really gifted. Yeah. It's, I, I think that the trusting the voice is something that I think every artist and writer thinks they understand what that means. And I'm not sure a lot of people like get it in their bones of like this, that how much you have to, that like you have to, you have to get comfortable in your own skin. Yeah. Like, and a lot of people aren't right. So that right there, that's something where you have to trust yourself and you have to really be able to get internally inside of your emotions and, and, and your feelings and your observations because the way I observe something would be different than the next person observes it. Yeah. Although we might have similar observations, you know, everybody has a unique perspective on things. So. Well, it's vulnerability because I do think it's the part of you that, you know, most of the time you would hide or cover up. The thing that makes you different is your voice. Right. And so the thing that makes you different for most people unconsciously, like they avoid revealing that because there's, again, this feeling of disconnection, this feeling of I won't be part of the tribe or the feeling of, the shame of like, I don't belong here. And so I've like found that, oh, if I find those feelings, then I know that that is my voice. And I know that that's where I can practice vulnerability. And, and, and hopefully it's in a safe environment where you get that validation. So it feels more and more comfortable to do that. But I've been working so much with my writers on that, where I'm like, you know, they, where I'm like, it's, it's going to feel bad at first. It's going to feel, unless you have had amazing parents that taught you the most validated vulnerability, which most right. of us <laughs> have not had that with schooling or, or our parents that. Unless you, both of your parents were writers and you yeah, grew up yeah. in that then environment. Maybe, then yeah. maybe they, they, they might have an advantage, right? Yeah. But, but really that like, the, like where that fear is, you know, and where that like, that, oh, if I do this, it could be the most painful thing in the world. Like, that's actually the good place. Right. And to expose yourself, a lot of people are like, you know, can I, do I dare write that? Like mm-hmm. T.S. Eliot said, do I dare disturb the universe? You know, uh, right? Yeah. It, yeah. But, um, you know, but that's where the power is. If you, you know, if you are daring and you, you don't, not afraid mm-hmm. to, to put yourself out there and to show yourself, you know, almost naked, let's say, right? Yeah. And say, this is, you know, this is my emotions and I, I'm very hurt or I'm very alone or I'm feel, you know, and, you know, I feel so lonely that I wrote this little poem that, you know, and then if someone else could read that and say, wow, I, I felt really lonely too. And I didn't know how mm-hmm. to express it, but, you know, you just put it into words and they could connect to that. Yeah. It's I think also beautiful. it has to do with, again, the, uh, bring the reader through these places of, of, uh, vulnerability and they bring it to healing to to a place of understanding of like kind of it's for us to navigate ourselves through these difficult treacherous waters so that then we can then find a pathfinder for our reader to be able to 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 find a way out of or, or not out of but through or process through and such so we have to kind of the the burden in a way is in the writer to be able to find some kind of outlet or find some kind of pathway. You know, life is so mysterious yeah. and there's so many yeah. things, you know, we really don't understand. Yeah. And we're just here for a really brief period of time. Yeah. So, you know, if we can capture a, a you know, a bit of the human experience, you know, yeah. and share that with one another, you know, the humanity you know, of, of, of us all. I yeah. mean, that's so important. And that's getting lost now with the internet and with yeah. everybody, you know, doing 
quick things and you know where's the emotion Instant and you know you know instagram yeah. where is the emotion on instagram and yeah, where where is you know right you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, i think it's mostly you know people having emotion at well i mean instagram actually like there's so sadly there's actually a lot of research coming out about feelings of shame with instagram because there's this portray there's people that are portraying you know their persona online and it is so poised that and it it was meant to be aspirational at first and be inspirational right. but that has turned into something that is so not capable with like all of the tuning and the photoshopping and the you know right, right. that now there's like this intense shame and there's a lot of damage that's coming from that that yeah. is because people don't realize that what people put on facebook or instagram is what people you know i mean unless you you know there are some young people who put things on the internet that they don't realize that the whole world will see it mm -hmm. and then they regret you know that they put those photos or whatever but um yeah um you know, people like I, I understand what you're saying because you know I, I promote my writing on Facebook, mm -hmm. and when I have a, a writing event, I'll put that on Facebook, and you know, but that's not you know that's a big part of my life, but that's not my whole life, and that doesn't yeah. mean I'm having you know I can have a bad day or that I'm worried about something or I'm dealing with you know a sick relative, you know that that stuff I don't show on Facebook. Mm -hmm. So people say, wow, you know, it's so exciting, you know, yeah. you're writing. You know, they think it's bigger and better than it really is. But I'm yeah. like, yeah, when I go home, I'm still dealing with the sick relative, uh, and I'm still, yeah. you know, have you know, yeah. other, I have the normal things that everybody else deals with. You know, yeah. like the subway yeah. and you know, the crowds and everything. Yeah, you know? it's it's just so interesting how like before, like most of like the images that we saw were advertisements. There was companies behind them, and there's a way to almost hold responsibility. Those those forms for saying like, you know, you don't like that's not appropriate or that's going to might be damaging or them um but with social media like oh. you have the ability for people to reach just as many people as the big advertisers but without any monitoring right. essentially oh. without right. any anything coming in and saying like this might actually not be healthy for massive amounts of young people to right. be watching like you know like similar with youtube and what they're going through right now where it used to be like if you saw something in a movie or on tv there was filters that that had to go to. There was a curation of what is going to at least do no harm for, you know, and, and that's something that we no longer have anyone kind of monitoring and doing that. And so I just think it is interesting. And even I've had that where I used to just use Instagram for travel photos because I was like, I just, it's a good place to store photos. And I didn't realize that I run into friends or writers and, and they'd just be like, oh, I'm having such a hard time. Oh, but your life is perfect and you must be doing And I was just like, I was like crying in Budapest <laughs> for a week yeah. because I was so lonely. And and I, you know, and yeah, you I have a nice few pictures that are really nice, but nobody knows the whole story. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. And, and I didn't and I didn't think I didn't real I didn't realize because like I just thought like, oh, my fun travel photos. I didn't realize that there was a narration going on for some people that. Right you know, that made them feel like their life wasn't good enough. Because I was like, what? I was like, you have this amazing marriage and you have a dog and I'm like crying in Budapest trying to meet people <laughs> uh -huh. that speak English because I'm there for like six weeks and I'm lonely as hell, you know? So I just think, you know, it's a good thing to be careful with people and that, yeah. that yeah, looking for poetry rather than Instagram for connection is a really yeah. good thing. <laughs> good, good. And also, Linda, I know that uh, just as we start to wind down, just a few minutes to... Talk about like a life changing event. You, I, I understand you were uh, on a reality TV show and all this kind of stuff. You talk a little bit about that and just talk about how. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, in 2007, I had the opportunity to go on a reality TV show called 10 Years Younger. 
Uh-huh. And um, I got new teeth, which the radio audience can't see. But um, <laughs> basically, they sent me to a cosmetic dentist and they sent me to Christy Brinkley's dermatologist, Dr. Patricia Wexler. And they gave me a makeover. And part of my um, story on the show was I wanted to go back to college, but I didn't want to be the old lady in the classroom. So um, I got on the TV show and I, I, you know, they gave me this makeover. And then it was like, wow, now I have to go back to college because I can't go on TV and say I'm going to college (laughs) and not go to college. So it was like, it really gave me the kick in the pants to get myself moving. And then that led to going to Queens College for my library science degree. And in my last semester, um, I did a case study of Poets House, which is a poetry library in downtown Manhattan. And I spent the whole semester at Poets House, taking workshops, going to lectures, um, just immersed myself in the whole environment. And that woke up the writer in me that was basically sleeping. And that was the beginning of taking all these classes. And then eventually that led to me going to just a new school to get my MFA degree. Excellent. And yeah, it seems like you know, making that commitment and saying, you know, public commitment and saying, mm-hmm. I want to do this. Right. Helped you fall through and helped you. Right. I'm not put, someone to say something and then not do it. Yeah. You know? good, and so good. if I put my, if I say something, I want to do my best to keep my word. Excellent. Right. Excellent. That's really great. Right. And I think that, um, yeah, now yeah. I'm hosting um, the Fahrenheit Open Mic, yeah. and um, the next show is on July 7th at Black and White Bar, which is on 86th Street, uh, 86 uh, East 10th Street between 3rd and 4th Avenue. Um, sign up is at 6.30. The show is at 7. Uh, we go from 7 to 10. Everybody gets five minutes to do anything they want. Basically, we have comedy, we have music, we have poetry, spoken word, and it's been a great show. And um, if anybody is hearing me on the radio and comes to the next show on July 7th, I will buy you a drink. Thank well, you. that is a, yeah. <laughs> let's see how that so works. Say, yeah. Yeah. So let's see how it works. So that's the truth of power or something. Is we'll it a see. Code word? We'll yeah. see how much power the truth has. Yeah. yeah great, great. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So ready for Brooklyn is a 501 C3 nonprofit organization. His mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community, promote media literacy, education, and free expression. We rely primarily on donations of listeners like you. So to support our mission, we invite you to make a one-time donation or monthly pledge at readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate, or you can go to readyforbrooklyn.org slash truth to power to um, sponsor this particular show. Every cent helps us continue to stay on air. So please support independent community media by pledging whatever you can afford. All contributions are tax deductible to full extent to law. Again, it's readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Uh, Ready for Brooklyn is proud to announce that they're launching a um, local teens uh, after-school program for local teenagers. Through media literacy, through media making, using a hands-on approach guided by local professionals. If you're interested in participating or donating to this program, please go to readyforbrooklyn.org slash after school. And remember, all donations are tax deductible. Uh, if you're listening to us on your computer, please free yourself up and go to our mobile apps for iPhone or Android. Uh, available in the app, store, app stores for iPhone or Google Play Store for Android. And... Uh, so now, well, I'll give some last calls, and then uh, I believe uh, Linda had selected a song uh, for us to play as our out song. Um, just pull that up. Meanwhile, uh, Jessica, do you have any last uh, comments? Yeah, or? no, I would say uh, thank you all to all the poets. Um, poetry was my entry point into writing and healed, helped heal me so much, and yeah, if anyone wants to do some meditative writing or work on a screenplay or a play, um, you can find uh, more at meditativewriting.org. Great, great. And also, I have a reading on July 10th uh, in Vintage at 7.30, I believe. Postofqueens.org you can go to. Uh, 7.30 in Vintage in Astoria, Queens. Uh, please hope to see you guys there for our reading. 
And, uh, hang on. Uh, yeah, and, and Linda, you have anything last? Um, yeah, well, the next Fahrenheit Open Mic is on July 7th. And um, I'm also curating uh, three readings in um, 6 BC Botanical Garden, which is on um, Avenue B and 6th Street with uh, my friend Philip Giambri. And we're going to have three readings this summer. So um, if you check me out on Facebook, you'll get that information there. Thank you. Thank you. So we're going out with Just Like Heaven by The Cure. Thank you. Thank you, Vijay.